0: It is becoming increasingly complicated for our family to prepare for vacations. (laughs) This summer, for our road trip to Georgia for a week at the beach, we had so much that we needed to bring that it, it literally would not fit in our car. We had to rent a trailer to haul it all. Luggage for four adults myself, my wife, and my in laws, and two children. Bikes, beach tent, paddle boards, crib, stroller, and more. But in the end, we had everything that we needed, and it ended up being a successful trip. You know, that's a necessary part of, of any journey, making sure that you have everything you need before you begin, or it might mean an unplanned stop at Target, that happens too. In our passage this morning, Matthew 17, 14 through 27, Jesus recognizes this same need, the need to prepare before a journey. Jesus knows that his time with his disciples is short. He is about to be delivered into the hands of men, so he invests in preparing his disciples for his departure. He must help them pack their trailer So, to speak, with everything they will need once he is gone. In our study of the gospel according to Matthew, we have reached and passed the climax of the first half, the pivotal moment of Peter confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Since then, Jesus has been very clear that he is going to die. So he has begun teaching his disciples how he is going to build his church on true confessors, making a true confession, and what it means for them to follow him, to deny themselves and carry their cross. He has given his disciples a a time capsule for them to open when he is gone, the report of the, the glory seen in his transfiguration. And now we come to the rest of Matthew 17. We have three short scenes this morning, all connected in their common purpose to prepare those first disciples for their journey. Not a week at the beach, but for a lifetime of following and living for their King, Jesus. In their metaphorical trailer, they must include faith, fortitude, and freedom if they are to be ready for what is to come. We'll start by reading our text, Matthew seventeen fourteen through twenty seven found on pages eight twenty two and eight twenty three of your Pew Bible. You can turn there and join me with with me there. If you're just joining us this week visiting, uh, let me welcome you. My name is Kelton. I have the privilege of serving as the the pastor of Stafford Baptist Church. If you don't have a Bible, please. Open the pew Bible provided for you again on page 822. You'll be helped by keeping that open and following along as I'll be referring to the text often. Again, Matthew seventeen fourteen through 27, preparing the disciples. After I read, I will lead us in a prayer of illumination, asking for God's help in our hearing and for the proclamation of God's word. So Matthew 17, starting in verse 14. And when they came to it, the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the waters. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two, two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll, or tax, from their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that, and give it to them for me, and for yourself. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me for our hearing and for the proclamation of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess this morning that we are in need of your help. We are in need of your mercy. Or that we say, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, we pray this morning that by your word, by the teaching of Jesus, you would fill our hearts anew with faith in his power, that you would give us strength, Lord, that we would enjoy the freedom that we have as his sons, adopted not because of our merit, but because of your grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. Well, what's the the main point of this text in one idea? It might be this. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with faith, fortitude, and freedom. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with faith, fortitude, and freedom. In our passage, Jesus returns with the three from the Mount of Transfiguration and finds the nine remaining frustrated by a harmful demon. Clearly, they are not ready yet for him to be gone. So Jesus here teaches them of the strength of faith. He reminds them of his coming departure and therefore their coming suffering and teaches them about the freedom they have from the laws of the old covenant as he brings in the new. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with faith, fortitude, and freedom. We'll have three points this morning that just explain that main point. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with first, faith, that in verses 14 through 20. Second, fortitude, that in verses 22 and 23. Fortitude meaning just resilience or firmness of purpose. And third, freedom, 24 through 27. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with faith, fortitude, and freedom. Well, let's start with our first point back in verse 14 that sets up the scene. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with faith. So in verse 14, they come to the crowd. It's, it's been a few weeks, so you'll have to look up to recall who the they are. It's Jesus with Peter, James, and John. He had taken them up the mount to pray with him when he was transfigured before them. Back in verse 9, they start coming down the mountain. But before they even have a chance to meet the other nine disciples, they come to, it says, a crowd And from that crowd appears one man who comes right to the feet of Jesus. This man appeals to Jesus in verse 15 for mercy, for his pity and compassion. Lord, have mercy, he says, on my son. Pause. What do you expect to happen? Well, you you already know it does happen. We just read it. But what does your heart expect Naturally, expect God to do when asked for mercy. When needy people come to Jesus in humble dependence on Him, knowing that He has the power, asking not because of their worth but His mercy, what do you think it is in Jesus' nature to do? Hold up His nose. Investigate the merit of the supplicant. When you pray to God for mercy, what do you imagine it's like for the Father in heaven as he hears? This is the third time in the Gospel of Matthew that someone has come to Jesus specifically asking for his mercy. Lord, have mercy. What happened the first two times? Jesus had mercy, he acted, he healed. Well, we've already read the account we know this is exactly what happens here but uh, but i want to pause to draw this out for our hearts this morning one of the simplest prayers that you can pray in earnest is what this man prays to jesus lord have mercy pray it when you have feel of your need for mercy And pray it filling your heart now with the knowledge that our God in the person of our compassionate Savior is abundant in mercy. This is simply who He is. It is His name. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy... He has abundant mercy. He has mercy for you in your need. Sinner, sufferer, it is in his heart to hear and meet our need. So this morning, as we gather in worship of our triune God, what do you suffer? What need do you have? He has mercy to meet it. This man, the man we read of this morning, suffered watching his son suffer. And he has apparently been helpless to relieve him of his suffering. His son has seizures that threaten his life, causing him to fall into fire and water time and time again. His father is desperate for help. So while Jesus was away, we learn that this man came to the disciples... They, however, we learn in verse 16, could not heal him. Some of us can relate to this father very personally. Our loved ones, whether it be our sons or our other in our family, suffer, and it seems no one can help them. Some that, very literally, suffer seizures. Some that suffer the enslavement of sin. Certainly, whatever else this passage teaches us this morning, it certainly teaches us that we must bring those needs to Jesus. We learn here that true faith perseveres even in the midst of enduring, persevering trials, like this man and his son were experiencing. We know that trials are designed to test and refine our faith. Certainly, as we study this passage this morning, it's important to remember a detail from earlier in Matthew. Matthew 10, verse 1. Of these very disciples, we learn that Jesus called them, these twelve disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. All twelve, including these nine, had authority from Jesus to cast out demons. To heal every disease. Note that word, every. So they, they had the authority. What was the problem then? Well, verse 17, Jesus begins to answer. We read there, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. I don't think it's hard for us to imagine the emotion with which Jesus spoke these words. Certainly he is not cheerful. This is very similar to what we read earlier in our service from Numbers 14. When after the the wilderness generation rebels, the Lord asks how long they will despise him and not believe. But those questions are rhetorical. Obviously, we know that God is omniscient. One of the perfections of our God is that He has all knowledge. He is never in the process of learning. He doesn't lack anything, including knowledge of the future. It's as Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, I am God, and there is none like me. What does it mean for Him to be God with none like Him? Well, He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. God knows what is next and and even the end because He declared it. Well, is that true for Jesus as well? well? Without jumping straight into the deep end, let's simply note He knows, even in this passage, That his time is short. He knows the end. When he asks here, how long am I to bear with you? He knows already that his arrest is imminent. He knows the time is short. He says that much right here in verse 22. The Son of Man is about to be delivered. The Gospels time and time again make it clear that Jesus knew the hour of his departure. Other times he would say, my hour has not yet come. So when he asks these questions in verse 17, it is rhetorical, helping us to feel what Jesus felt. His holy displeasure at persistent unbelief and wickedness. He calls the generation faithless and twisted. For Jesus, the healing of this man's son is no test. Verse 18 reports it. With emphasis on how instantly Jesus heals the boy. With a rebuke, with simply a word, it says the demon is gone. It came out of him and the boy was healed instantly, it says. At that very moment, at at once. To be clear, I think Jesus' sorrow in verse 17 is particularly aimed at the nine who failed to heal the boy. It is they, particularly, who have demonstrated a lack of faith while the man demonstrates faith. That's what we see next, I think, in verses 19 through 20, 21. Now the twelve come to Jesus privately, right? They want to know why. Why couldn't they cast it out? Well, he gives a simple answer in verse 20. Because of your little faith because of your little faith. Now, I want to be clear here. We've seen Jesus use this phrase little faith a number of times in Matthew, but I think this time the meaning is different. The commentator RT France makes it clear. I'll, I'll lean on his expertise here. He says the literal meaning little faith is most clearly inappropriate here. Why? Well, since Jesus goes on to charge them with having not even the smallest grain of faith. Do you you see that here? Right? After saying it's because of their, quote, little faith, he goes on to say that if they had little faith, they could move mountains. That's the point of the, the mustard seed comparison. Why does he talk about mustard seeds? Certainly not because they were big. They were the smallest seeds known to them. He is saying, in other words, little faith would be sufficient to move mountains. So I think we have to conclude, when he calls their faith little, he's really saying because you have none. The problem was not the quantity of their faith, small or large, it's that they didn't have faith. I'm not sure why. Maybe they'd slipped in Jesus' absence into relying on on themselves rather than God's power. It's clear, saints, that in the Gospels we have a complex picture of the, the disciples' successes and failures in faith. We have to remember that, that in, at this period the, the fullness of Christ's work has not been accomplished. The outpouring of the Spirit is yet to come. Unfortunately, some Bible teachers twist verses like, These to mean that any suffering we experience is due to the smallness of our faith. They make false promises. If you just had more faith, we would have prosperity, health, and and riches. To put it bluntly, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It's a demonic lie. Jesus had perfect faith, the greatest faith any human could ever have, and he had a life of sorrows acquainted with grief. It is clear that it is not the quantity of faith, large or small, that is important. Small faith, from Jesus' lips himself, is sufficient to move mountains. Nothing impossible, he promises. No, it is simply faith that is necessary. Yes, we certainly affirm that you could have more or less faith. We can grow in faith. Paul says as much to the Thessalonians, where in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, he says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Why? Because of your faith. It is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you is increasing. So faith can grow, saints. Faith that is greater gives us greater joy and assurance and so much more. So we have certainly reason to grow in faith. And that is the design of trials to test, to prove, and to grow our faith. But again, in the words of Jesus here in Matthew 17, even with the smallest faith, mountains can be moved. Nothing will be impossible for you, he says. Certainly, we must understand Jesus' teaching here to be metaphorical. We have no reports of any of the apostles moving any mountains. Right, He is pointless to say that what seems insurmountable to you will be com- accomplished. Right, He does not teach that faith is some genie in a bottle. We only have to remember Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane to affirm this. He prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If it is possible... When Jesus here in Matthew 17 promises that nothing is impossible, it it assumes that we are submitted to the will of God. Right? Some things simply are not possible because they are not God's will. Like the cup passing from Jesus. But nothing that God calls us to will be impossible for us. No matter how insurmountable it seems, as if it were a mountain... In our path. What those who twist these verses fail to understand is that our faith has power not because of its size, and therefore more or less power, but because of its object. The simplest, the smallest true faith in the sufficient Savior is sufficient because of its object Jesus. So when we suffer, we can persevere in true faith. Because God uses our suffering for his purposes. It is according to his will. And nothing is impossible if it is according to his will. We notice even in this story how he has used suffering to teach the Father, to teach the Son, to teach now his disciples about himself. So saints, if we are to follow Jesus in the journey of our life, we must be prepared with faith. Simple faith. We must trust him. And not our own power. We must persevere in that reliance on him. No matter our circumstances. No matter how insurmountable they might seem. And we must have faith especially in sufficiency of Christ's substitutionary death for our sins. That's what Jesus continues to teach in our next session. In our brief second point to follow Jesus you must be prepared with fortitude. Our second point, to follow Jesus, you must be prepared with fortitude. But before we get into that, I need a little sidebar, a little sidebar. You might be wondering, if you're reading the ESV, where is verse 21? Where is verse 21? Did someone lose count when numbering these verses? The ESV goes straight from 20 to 22. Or if you have... New American Standard Bible, it will include verse 21, but in brackets, it reads, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. If you have the ESV, you will see that in footnote 5. I think it would be a distraction if I don't explain what's happening here, so just a minute on this before we move on to point 2. Verse 21, as it's marked in the ESV footnote, is similar to how this very story ends in another gospel, in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. To make a long story short, the earliest manuscripts we have access to of Matthew do not have verse 21. You might not know this, but it's certainly true. All early copies of the Bible were copied painstakingly by hand. It was many, many, many years before a printing press would be invented. And what is copied by hand is prone to human error. It's actually common in these early manuscripts, little spelling errors, words missing, sometimes even words added. The good news is that we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts so that we can compare them now and find these kinds of errors. And as I alluded to earlier, the earliest copies of Matthew that we have, known as, for those interested, Codex B and Codex Sinaiticus, do not have verse 21. What we think happened is that someone copying Matthew inserted this phrase from Mark 9. He thought it might be helpful for us to remember this little detail that's recorded for us in Mark 9, so inserted it here. And obviously, when others came to copy that manuscript, they continued copying it. If you have questions about this, I would highly recommend the book by the New Testament scholar Peter J. Williams, Can We Trust the Gospels? Can We Trust the Gospels? It's short. Though it's written by a scholar, it's for every Christian. He writes there, Arguably, we have greater knowledge of what Jesus said than of the sayings of any other ancient person who did not write a book. He goes on to cite that we have, for example, two sources for what Socrates said. Two sources in all of history for what Socrates said. But for Jesus, in terms of sheer volume of manuscripts in different languages, the Gospels are the best documented texts from antiquity by some margin. The practical implication is that we have great reason to be confident that we have the very words Matthew wrote. Matthew 17.21 might not be in your version of the Bible, but Jesus certainly spoke them. Just that Matthew didn't record them for us here. They're for you in Mark 9.29. Okay, all that for a quick sidebar. Back to our second point. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with fortitude, starting not in verse 21, but 22. Jesus and his disciples have left Galilee, but are now returning They return and he continues to teach them about his imminent death. This is that that new element of his teaching. Since Peter confessed him as the Christ, the Son of the living God, he has begun to teach them that he must suffer and die. So here he repeats it and emphasizes here that it is coming soon. Let me reread those two verses for us. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered. Into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Clearly, his disciples needed to be reminded. They don't quite yet understand what is going to happen or why. So Jesus patiently repeats himself. I know I get frustrated when, with my children, I have to repeat them, I have to teach the same thing to them over and over. It tests my patience, and it's often found lacking when for the hundredth time I have to remind them to say please or put your shoes away. Saints, Jesus is patient. He will sigh in sorrow at unbelief, but it causes him to act, to teach, and to repeat. He is willing to teach us the same lesson in the face of our unbelief over and over. I wonder, saints, how can you say thank you to Jesus this morning for his patience in teaching you again and again? We are far too often obdurate, hardened in our our opposition, stubborn and slow. What is it that Jesus has been patiently teaching you? Again. If you are new to the faith, be encouraged. Jesus, our teacher, will repeat his lessons for you time and time again. Or if you don't yet believe, consider Jesus' kindness in teaching this to you. The message of his death is good news, but it is not good news that you or I deserve to hear even once, let alone again and again. The opportunity to hear it again is mercy. Every breath we draw, And here, again, is a debt to God, a gift that we do not deserve. This message of Jesus' death is the message that we all must believe that Jesus came to die. We notice here that Jesus is very intentionally not avoiding his death because it is why he came. No, rather, he is preparing his disciples for it. His death will be an act of human injustice, but an act of divine justice. He will die in the place of all those who repent of their sins and trust in him. So that though we deserve death, we can have life in him. Faith in this good news is possible because God makes us new. And as we are made new, we love him even more than we love life itself. This new life is marked by a loving commitment to God and to his people. And to persevere in that kind of faith and love, we need fortitude, resilience, firmness of purpose. In these verses, Jesus is not just teaching about what will happen to him. He is also reminding his disciples that he will not always be with them. And is reminding them that they too will suffer just as he is. John 15:20 Remember the word that I said to you A servant is not greater than his master If they persecuted me they will also persecute you So as Jesus here predicts his own mistreatment he is preparing them and us for our own journey We too will be mistreated maligned and sometimes even killed for our master If they, if we are to make it to the end in face of such hate and hostility and opposition, we must have fortitude. And this too, this fortitude God gives, just as he gives the new birth and faith, so too does God give us everything that is necessary to persevere in that faith. He who promised, he who called is faithful, he will surely do it. But let's be clear, saints, he does not give us fortitude simply by osmosis. I I wish that growing strong were that easy. I think of all those infomercials for exercise machines that finally, after all the years, make getting fit a breeze. Something you just attach to your stomach and by electric shock will give you six-pack abs. Sorry, folks, building muscle requires work. That is so true of us spiritually as well. So what means has God given us to grow strong, to endure the opposition of the flesh, the world, and the devil? Well, it's nothing amazing. Nothing an infomercial can promise. Christians are strengthened by ordinary means. By prayer. By reading, studying, and meditating on our heavenly food, God's word. By receiving encouragement and correction from other believers. By singing and hearing others sing to us precious truths. So I wonder, Saint, how is your exercise routine lately? Are you growing in strength or weakening because of muscle atrophy? Are you making use of the means God has given to have fortitude for the journey that is before you? Are you giving yourself in love to God's people to help them grow, to be strong in their journey as well? That's a part of God's purposes for His church, that none of the weak stray from the flock, and we all have seasons of weakness. So true love for God will show up in our willing commitment to inconvenience ourselves, to help other Christians grow strong spiritually. That's part of what it means to deny ourselves to follow Christ. I guess we're something like a group exercise class. But we're not modeling physical fitness. It's spiritual fitness. To have strength to to endure in our journey of following Jesus. If we are to follow Jesus, we must be prepared with fortitude. All the strength comes from Him, but it comes through all the routines He has designed So saints, be prepared for the journey with the strength that comes from God. Finally, our third point, to follow Jesus, you must be prepared with freedom. To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with freedom. I think of the three, this third section might seem a bit hard to decipher, but I think it will be more clear when we understand more about this tax he's referring to. So, in this third point, I'll start with the conclusion, then try to prove it to you. Jesus here is teaching that his disciples, as adopted brothers and sisters in the family of God, are freed from the obligations of the old covenant. We, however, do not use our freedom to, uh, to serve ourselves, but to serve others, avoiding all unnecessary offense. So again, Jesus is teaching his disciples as adopted brothers and sisters in the family of God are freed from the obligations of the old covenant. We, however, are to use our freedom to serve one another, avoiding all unnecessary offense. So how can we prove that? Well, first we need to understand what this tax is. Look with me again at verse 24. The scene begins when they come to Capernaum, the home base of their mission and ministry for so much A tax collector comes to Peter and asks, Does his teacher pay the two drachma tax? A drachma is a coin. It's about equivalent to a laborer's day wage. But when we hear tax today, we immediately think of civil taxes. We think of the IRS. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. He will teach us about paying taxes to the government in Matthew 22, verses 15 and following. And there Jesus is very clear that we are to pay what is Caesar to Caesar's. No, this two drachma tax is not paid to the government, but given to the temple. We have no real modern equivalent. You might call it an offering, but it was mandatory according to God's law. It is taught for us in Exodus chapter 30 verse 13... That verse tells us each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. So in Jesus' day, two drachmas were worth half a shekel. Sorry for all the conversions, geras, shekels, drachmas. But I I want to show you that this, this payment is part of what God's law required. This is a part of the Old Covenant. Two drachmas annually at the census given to the temple for the service of the tent of meeting. The old covenant mandated many gifts to God, including this census tax. But what does Jesus teach about it here? Look at verse 25. Jesus teaching Peter, Simon Peter, uses a parable to prepare Peter. He is free. He uses the illustration of a king. Do kings tax their own children? You can answer. No, they raise funds from others. This is less familiar to us because we live in a democratic republic where all citizens, even the president, are required to pay taxes. Jesus' point, though, in the illustration is that the sons, the sons of the king, don't pay. pay. They're free, according to verse 26. Well, now let's apply that illustration to the temple. Who is the king when we talk about the temple? God. And who is his son? Jesus. His point here is understated, only implied, but let's make it clear. Jesus is, no under, is under no obligation to pay this tax because he is God's son. The sons are free. Though... In verse 27, he's under no obligation to pay. He instructs Peter to pay the tax by miraculous provision. And why? Well, in order to not give offense to them. So Jesus is free not to, but does so in order to give no offense. And I think the reason that he is very intentional to find Peter and teach him is because this is true for him too. Notice even the illustration, it's the sons are free. Now, of course, Peter is not God's son in the same way that Jesus is, but, but he is a part of the family. He's adopted in the family. Jesus, his brother. The Bible repeatedly teaches us that to be in Christ, the son, is to be adopted as a son and daughter. And that is put in contrast to being under the law. Galatians 4, starting in verse 4. For example, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has spent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, And if a son, then an heir through God. We in Christ have the same status. Redeemed from the law to be an heir through God. Our redemption means that we are adopted as God's children. We too are sons and daughters and therefore free from the obligations of the Old Covenant. This is in fact what Paul goes on to argue in that very letter. Galatians 5.13. He says, You were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. We are free, but our posture in our freedom is to serve others. The message of the New Testament is that we have received a new covenant. We no longer relate to God our Father through the old covenant and its laws. You know this intuitively. We don't sacrifice lambs. We don't wear ephods. It's obsolete, part of the Old Covenant. To summarize, the New Covenant in Christ's blood nullifies the obligations of the Old Covenant, replacing it what? with the law of Christ. But the Old Covenant is still Christian Scripture, useful to us now as, as prophecy and as wisdom. I wonder, even related to this text, have you noticed that the New Testament conspicuously avoids the Old Testament tithe law in motivating us to give to support the ministry. Never are Christians commanded to give a tithe. Instead, it appeals to the example of Christ's generosity and sacrifice. In other words, the law of Christ. And in fact, it never tells us to support buildings as the Old Covenant required support of the temple. Rather, it calls us to support people in the form of the gathering of the church for those in need and for pastors. Allow me a long quote from the Bible teacher John Piper because he puts this point so well. Follow along with me on the slides. He says, so here's the main point of the passage, speaking of Matthew 17. Those who trust and follow Jesus as the Son of God are the true children of God and are therefore free from the old system of temple worship and its taxes. This does not mean that we no longer care about the ministry of worship. It means that we come to God through Jesus. And if there is, incidentally and culturally, a building involved, we are not forced or coerced to support that building. The sons are free. The point of verse 27, the payment of the tax, seems to be this. If you are a child of God, you decide how you will support a non-essential building. And all of them are now. Not by thinking of yourselves taxed by God, but by thinking of whether there are reasons the building will advance the cause of Christ. Which is not building-oriented, but God-oriented, and kingdom-oriented, and ministry-oriented, and people-oriented. You too, Saint, are free from the law to live as servants of Christ. The temple in Jerusalem is no longer the focus of our worship and ministry. It was pointing to Jesus, the new place of God's presence and his body, this assembly. So we, if we are to follow Jesus in the new covenant, we must be prepared with the freedom that he brings. We do not have a spirit of slavery, but of adoption as sons. And as sons, we gladly give up our freedom to serve others, to not put a stumbling block in front of others. You know, even though early Jews were freed from the obligations of the Old Covenant, they still lived by some of these Old Testament customs to not give offense We see some being circumcised or not eating meat that were sacrificed to to idols in order to help others. What are ways that we can do this? Well, the immediate application of this text, brothers and sisters, is to cheerfully give to the work of the ministry, not because of an annual census tax, but because you have been set free to serve. I know it's small, but another way we can do this is even when the songs we sing are not your favorite, sing loudly to encourage those who love that song. Or another, even if you don't feel like your skills are in cooking or childcare, make a dish for the potluck. Volunteer in children's ministry so tired parents can be helped by the sermon. Friends, you are given freedom to serve others to give up your preferences that others might be built up. Faith, fortitude, and freedom. They're not everything we need to follow Jesus. He will teach much more in the weeks to come. But here are three essentials needed for every disciple who begins their journey with Christ. Faith, as small as a mustard seed. Trust and dependence on God's mercy in Christ not your own righteousness and power. Fortitude, strength from God to endure all trials on the journey. Trials from your own flesh, your own sin, the the world and the devil. And that fortitude comes by the most ordinary exercises. And freedom, brothers and sisters, release from the letter of the law to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Our journey is to walk by the Spirit. With His law not written in written code but written on our very hearts. In a moment, brothers and sisters, we have an opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we are reminded that these are all temporary. Faith will one day become sight. We will not need this kind of fortitude because there will be an end of all opposition where we now need strength to endure. And in that day, our nature will be perfected to enjoy freedom in service to others forever. But for now, Saints, I ask, are you ready for the journey? To follow Jesus, you must be prepared with faith, fortitude, and freedom. That's prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we say, Lord, have mercy. We take great comfort from the fact that you are abundant in mercy, rich in mercy. It is your very nature, merciful and gracious. So, Lord, in your mercy, we pray that you would give us what we need to follow you. Lord, as you called us, you are faithful and will surely do it. To give us faith, fortitude, and freedom for the journey that is before us until all will be perfected in the sight of Christ when he comes again. It is in the hope that he will come surely soon that we pray all this in his name, amen.